This is the NGB Ideas podcast, where we discuss the personal journeys of disruptors, leaders, and innovators in the Canadian life sciences community. Hi, I'm Jim Wilson, and on the show today, we're joined by Alex Mugga, whose serendipitous journey took him from Hamilton to Boston, not once, but twice. Alex is executive director of the Synapse Consortium in Hamilton, Ontario, and he not only accepted the position he occupies when it was offered, he helped create it. Alex Maga, I appreciate you allowing me to take some of your time to join us today. Welcome to Next Great Big Ideas, the podcast. Thank you very much, Jim. It is a delight to be here with you. I'm really looking forward to the conversation that we're going to have today. Likewise. Our listeners know this podcast is about the personal journey of leaders, innovators, and disruptors in Canada's life sciences community. And I'm looking forward to talking with you today about your journey. So if you don't mind, I'd like to start with your parents, as we normally do. Where were they born? What did they do? My parents were and are really dynamic and interesting individuals who have been the guiding lights for me, have certainly laid the foundation for the person and and the man that I've become. They were both born in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and were childhood sweethearts. We certainly are often regaled about their various misadventures and adventures in and around high school. That said, my mother, who is a real dynamic and enthusiastic person, felt that perhaps that there might be some opportunities outside of Nova Scotia. And so she left and went up to Upper Canada to Queen's University, got a degree, and my father stayed a little bit closer to home, eventually got a a medical degree from Dalhousie University. His father was the clerk of the legislative house in Nova Scotia and He had a real sense and real roots in Nova Scotia, and really that's been an interesting dynamic between my parents. My mother looking to the horizon and pushing herself, my father and the whole family to seek around corners and to explore, and and my father really grounded in a sense of belonging and place and connecting to the individuals and the institutions and the spaces that make up that definition of home. And that's been a, a really interesting dynamic that has shaped not only my life and their lives, but you know also the life of my siblings. Your mom graduated from Queens, went back to Halifax. I'm assuming they got married and then they moved to Montreal. They did a real cross-the-country tour in, in their early years. My mom, in fact, did come back and met up with my dad. And this being in sort of the 60s, there was a little bit about formalizing sort of the relationship before they could go off and and live together. They did end up in Montreal, but before that, they actually had a pit stop in Cape Breton where my father was a resident. He actually served as the family doc for a whole community for a year. And then they went to Montreal. After Montreal, they then went to British Columbia after British Columbia, they went to Toronto and then from Toronto to Ottawa. And sort of along each of those stops, a different child arrived. My eldest brother is from BC. My sister was born in Montreal. My brother was in Toronto and I was born in Ottawa. Did your mother have a career that was taking them to these different places? It was vice versa. So it was really was opportunities that were presented to my father through his specialization as an obstetrician and gynecologist. And one of the things that he was a real leader and a pioneer was introducing ultrasound and incorporating ultrasound into the standard of care for obstetrics and gynecology. Not singularly responsible for this, but part of a wave and a generation of obstetricians who were bringing that and making that a standard procedure for women who were pregnant. My mother did did do work, but I would say that it wasn't until we got to Ottawa where my awareness of her working really kind of took off. And she's always been in the public sector. 
and interested in community building, capacity building, interested at the in healthcare. So she worked with Council on Aging up in Ottawa. And when we eventually moved to Hamilton, she actually was the CEO for the Victorian Order of Nurses, which is a very large organization that provides home care and support to elderly populations. Eventually, she landed at the Hamilton Community Foundation, which is uh, an absolutely amazing organization in Hamilton that provides grants and support to a whole spectrum of not-for-profits. Two very accomplished parents. That's a really cool story. I'd like to touch a little bit more on your parents because you've said that they instilled in you in the importance of public service and providing for your community and for your neighbors. And I also understand they instilled in you the thought that the pursuit of money for money's sake is not a great path to follow. That's true. I would say that my parents themselves model the behavior and the values that I hope to uphold on a daily basis. And that's really around community building, strengthening and supporting those with whom you live and who are less fortunate, and about creating the space and contributing to the space that you live in and leaving it in a better place than you found it. They themselves worked for not-for-profit or publicly funded organizations. They sought out satisfaction and fulfillment through their impact rather than through their bank balance. And that was something that really resonated with me. Thank you for sharing that. So you were born in Ottawa in 1979, and you're the youngest of four siblings. I'm the youngest of five, and my siblings tell me to this day that you know, it's the best position to be in. Would your siblings say the same? Oh, absolutely. They paved a superhighway before me. They did all the hard work. They trained my parents. And I would say the only thing for which I might have hold any regret is the fact that I was not tempered or pushed enough as a child to really fulfill my full potential because they made it so easy for me. Got two older brothers and an older sister, and they are amazing, both in the way they live their lives as individuals and as parents and as citizens, as well as their professional accomplishments. Both brothers lived for a while in Sri Lanka, and one lived in Japan, and your sister lived in New York and Switzerland. Travel seems to be a common thread here. Absolutely. My siblings have definitely adopted and encouraged that sense of exploration and of pushing oneself and one's boundaries that was instilled by my mother, really have gone away in order to learn and to expose themselves to experiences, to ideas, to professional opportunities, and then have all returned back to Canada to raise families, though my middle brother continues to be a global citizen. You've said that you've discovered through your siblings that life was fragile and you became a better person through that realization. What do you mean by that? I would say that my siblings have shown to me the value of taking advantage of opportunities that are presented and have gone to places where the day-to-day -day lived experience of people in those different communities is harder than a kid growing up in Hamilton, Ontario. My sister spent time up in the north, helping communities up in the Callowitz. My other brother did work in West Africa. And I think that the stories that they bring back have helped to ground my expectations about what is fair, what is equitable in terms of material satisfaction, and then also to realize how fast life can change. 
those must be some incredibly interesting dinner conversations when you all get together. My siblings have definitely encouraged that sense of exploration and of pushing oneself and one's boundaries. When I was in university, I went to my father and I said, I want to go on exchange. He said, oh, where do you want to go to? And I said, Belgium. And he said, Belgium? What's going on in Belgium? And I didn't have a good answer for him. And he just sort of shook his head and he said, well, you know, you think about that. You think about what you actually want to do and why you want to go there. What I really wanted to do was I wanted to get over to Europe so I could party in Europe. That ended up being a very unsatisfactory answer when I really examined it. And it led to opportunities. So he put your feet to the fire of responsibility young age. Right from the get-go. It was something that was important for my parents, that their children were good citizens, not only of Canada, but of the world. So you were born in Ottawa. Where in Ottawa did you live? So I lived in a little suburb called Manor Park, which was 12 square blocks of idyllic space. It, it had been initially conceived as housing for World War II veterans who were coming home. So it was kind of built up in the 50s. It was a space that allowed me to explore both geographically, so running around, being able to go through creeks and ravines and ponds. The Royal Mounted Police had their training ground there, so we got to sneak in and check that out. From there, I understand your father got a job at Master University in, of course, Hamilton. What was it that brought him to Mac? At that point... My father was given an opportunity to do two things. One was to be a prophet McMaster. Even more important was an opportunity to lead the obstetrics and gynecology group at St. Joseph's Healthcare, which is a big research hospital in Hamilton. That opportunity to do both a leadership of that group coupled with an opportunity to be an active instructor and leader of medical students at McMaster was an invigorating opportunity for my dad. And at that point, two of my siblings were at university. And so the four of us ended up making the decision to move down. Did you settle in Westdale in Hamilton or near the university? Settled in Kirkendale. We moved onto a street that had probably about 40 or 50 kids living on it. Had a really interesting and invigorating childhood in, in Hamilton. When you were in high school, playing any sports, belonged to any clubs? I was your classic jock nerd, part of the hockey team, as well as the chess club, model United Nations and math league, while also running cross country and, and other sports. Enjoyed a lot of the activities, really had a lot of fun. After high school, you went to Queens in Kingston and you got a bachelor's degree in commerce. Why Queens and what was it about that degree that attracted you? Queens was one of my top choices because of two things. The first was that my mother and my sister had both gone. I spoke really highly about their experience there. My interests at that time really revolved around international politics, around international trade, and around history. And there was an opportunity to take many of those as electives. But I would say that the kicker was a conversation I had with my family I got into effectively everywhere I applied and I said, look, I want to get into, go into Queens and, you know, the econ department will let me in, the history department will let me in and the commerce department will let me in. Where should I go? My mother said, oh, you need to go and do econ that aligns with your interests. My father said that hogwash, you need to go uh, and do a history degree. And then my eldest brother pulled me aside. He said, look, you need to think about getting a job. 
you should frankly go and get a commerce degree. He made the most persuasive case. At Queen's, you ended up joining the Queen's Journalist School newspaper, and you were working something like about 35 hours a week, running the paper, but not as the editor, rather on the business side. Plus, you were going to school, and your grades went up. I understand that situation taught you something about yourself. What was it that it taught you? Well, it taught me that a busy person is more likely to manage their time and to allocate effort against that time in a more thoughtful way. The old adage, you want to get something done, give it to a busy person, was never made more apparent for me than in that experience. And the journal was actually the opportunity that presented itself following my misadventure of trying to go on exchange to Belgium. And it did many things for me. The most notable being that I was given at the age of 20, the keys to a $400,000 a year business and told to run it alongside the two editors-in-chief. That responsibility was something I'd never experienced before. And it was incumbent upon myself to make sure that the money flowed in so that we could print it. And I really threw myself into it. There were 40 or 50 other students who were participating. It was completely student-run. And they came from every other department. And so suddenly overnight, I went from a very insular experience in the commerce program to suddenly being exposed to the entire school. And so that helped me in very vivid terms be conscious of kind of in and out groups and about getting in self-reinforcing bubbles, not only in terms of learning how to manage my time and learning how to dedicate myself to work and responsibility, but also to thinking about communities and how those communities interact, even when they live side by side. So if there's any university students who are listening to this podcast, I think the lesson is don't just go to class or to the bar on a Friday night. Get involved in something. Spread your wings. See what else is out there. You'll be surprised by what you experienced. Say yes to everything. If I had a piece of advice to students is suck the marrow out of that experience. Just squeeze every ounce of every opportunity because you will never have the kind of liberty and the plethora of options at such low stakes. It's a place to fail and a place to try and a place to succeed. One of my older sisters gave me some great advice when I was graduating, and she and a friend would go into a room full of people and they'd walk out and her friend would have not known anyone, and my sister would have known most people because she just said hi. And she said, the advice I will give to you as you start out in your business career is just say hi. You'll be amazed at the connections you'll make. And be polite to everyone because the person who's pouring the coffee today will be the CEO tomorrow. So you finished your undergraduate degree in 2002 and you went on to a one-year internship with the chief economist in the Department of Foreign Affairs in Ottawa. That's a bit of a leap in my world. How did that opportunity come up and, and what exactly did you do there? The opportunity was as much a function of the failing of the economy at the time. I was looking for jobs in October of 2001. For those who are old enough to remember, it was a, a bit of a tumultuous time. So all of the posted jobs were the regular, easy pathway jobs. I had a conversation with a really fantastic professor, a guy by the name of Mark Bush, who had done some work with the Department of Foreign Affairs and International Trade. And he said, look, maybe there might be an opportunity up in Ottawa. 
have you thought about working for the government? And I, I at that point had not. I reached out to the chief economist and through Mark, had a couple of conversations with them and they created an internship for me. And so that was a year of writing papers, doing data collection and analysis, but really having an opportunity to be exposed and to see the internal machinations of the Department of Foreign Affairs. And it whetted my appetite and exposed me to whole set of professional opportunities that I hadn't even been aware of. And it was a real pivot for me professionally, at least for the next decade or so. You ended up pursuing a master's of science in management economics. I'm the faintest idea what that is. So would you please explain it to me? So what is exactly a master's of sciences in management economics? What does that entail? It was a pilot program set up by the School of Business at Queen's as a bridge for students into their PhD program. It was an opportunity for individuals to test out a variety of different fields under the business umbrella and to create relationships with professors to potentially go on and do a four or five year PhD program. Why do they do call a master's in science versus a, a master's in arts? I think it might have to do with the amount of math and economics that I had to do and statistics. And then I did mine in management economics, which was really about political economy, international trade, and national global economic dynamics. My fellow students did the same masters in accounting or in marketing or in organizational behavior. Collectively, we were all part of this master's in science program. It was them trying out something brand new. Given that I was just doing this one-year internship, it actually worked out perfectly for me. That's really cool. Your career path at that time, you were, I understand, leaning towards being a currency trader or a broker. And this gentleman you just mentioned, Mark Bush, planted a seed. Could you tell me a bit more about him? Mark Bush was the single most important mentor, teacher, advisor, friend, that I had in the first 30 years of my life. In my fourth year of university, it was Tuesday morning. I was awoken by my roommate who said, Alex, I've just met the professor who I think will change your life. I mean, that's a pretty heady thing to hear from someone at 8.30 in the morning when you're 21 years old. He's running this class, international trade, economics. So talking about things like free trade agreements and country competitiveness and why countries and regions interact and how they do that. He said, you need to come and check it out. And so the next week, I just walked into his class. Before the class started, said, look, this is who I am. I've heard that your course is interesting. Can I sit in on this class? And he said, no, tell me something about why I should let you sit in my class. And at that point, I sort of took the little bit that I had gleaned from my classmate, sort of pieced it together in a rambling, pleading diatribe. I laid out a case for me to stay in his class. And he sort of grudgingly said, okay, I'll let you sit in this one class. And I sat in it and I would say a third of the class was present. Two thirds was kind of wandering away. And I was transfixed. It was every single thing that I had hoped to learn as a student, taking my interest in history, taking my interest in politics and economics and commerce, all wrapped up in this amazing dynamic individual. I was like a puppy. And I went up to him afterwards and I said, I want to take your class. And in fact, I want to take both your classes. 
And he looked at me and said, no, it's too late. And I said, no, you have to let me in. So I then just started pestering him. And finally, he let me in. Within a month, I was his teaching assistant and his research assistant. He opened a whole different world to me. I started his class in October of 2001. At the time, I thought, I'm interested in international trade. Maybe I'll go be a currency trader. All those jobs have been closed because people thought September 11 was the end of international commerce. It was through Mark that I was able to pivot and reorient myself to opportunities to engage with these themes through government, through not-for-profits, through the public sector. And so that was really where the pivot occurred for me. And it was really grounded in this professor who refused to accept middling work. I wrote a paper on one of those Monday afternoons before I went out. I literally, I wrote a 10 page or 12 or 15, whatever it happened to be in one go. I just sat down and wrote it as if I was just speaking extemporaneously about the subject. And I handed it into him and he said, this is a better paper than all of your classmates have written. But from you, it's a piece of garbage. I won't accept it and I won't grade it. I said, what do you mean? He said, you clearly wrote a first draft and that's not acceptable. And I said, but you just told me that it's better than everyone else. He said, I don't care if it's better than everyone else's. It is not nearly the caliber and the quality that I expect from you. And I said, jeez, okay. So then I had to go back and I rewrote it. And he said, this is better, but it doesn't have any original thought. I said, well, what do you mean original thought? He said, I need an original idea here. I had to spend the next three days thinking. And then finally, an original idea popped into my head. Or at least I thought it was original. It was original enough. And then I submitted, he said, finally, this is good enough for me to grade, but it's not where you need to be. It's not where you need to get to. So he didn't set the bar. He kept pushing you so you would set the bar. What a life-defining moment. I'm kind of getting the sense you were that student that everybody watched come in, maybe late, or maybe didn't show up, but still aced the course because you were one of those gifted students that it came to you, you got it, and it was a natural fit. You got the first part right. For the most part, I was going to school alongside people who worked really hard. I would say that I put in relatively less effort per grade point than they did. I was sort of an A minus student, but I was surrounded by A and A plus students who just worked really hard. I had a diverse set of interests and opportunities. And so I had to allocate my time. But I would also say, again, it wasn't until kind of fourth year when I met Mark, that I said, oh, right, this is actually what going to school is like. This is what is required in order to achieve the reasonable expectations based on the gifts that I've been blessed with. You did your master's in economics with Mark Bush at Queens, and you went back to Ottawa where you joined the Department of Foreign Affairs. What did that job entail? That was probably the single most concentrated fun period of my life. I was working at Foreign Affairs in their international trade policy group, helping to coordinate the negotiations of a free trade agreement with South Korea. I'm feeling a little bit inadequate here, but keep going. I assure you, this is how I feel when I'm at the dinner table with my siblings. I was the assistant to the chief negotiator, not to be confused with the assistant chief negotiator. My job was to coordinate all the logistics and to bring together all of the disparate government agencies and departments, both within foreign affairs, but also across the government to drive a coherent, cohesive, coordinated plan around how we were going to do these negotiations. This actually probably better than any other experience in my life set me up for my current job 
in that I had no power or authority. So I had to use moral suasion to convince a group of 80 individuals across governments to direct the time and energy needed in order for our negotiation to be a success. And then while also priming and prepping and supporting a chief negotiator who was an assistant deputy minister who had a, a multitude of items in his portfolio, I had to, at the age of 23, learn how to navigate the politics, the personalities, to speak to people who know more than I will ever know, who have more expertise and who were smarter, and squeeze out of them everything that is required for us as a collective whole to be successful, all the while dancing as a point of contact with Korea. It was a hell of a lot of fun. And around that time, you uh, met a young lady you took a shining to. Who is she and how did you meet? I met Erin, who is now my wife, while I was doing my master's at Queen's. She had done her undergrad at McMaster University. She spent her formative years in Kitchener-Waterloo. After we both graduated, we moved to Ottawa together. She got a job working for the government at the same time as I did. So things were obviously getting serious, and she got a position at Harvard. What was that about? Erin is one of the most capable, intelligent, and thoughtful individuals I've ever met. She found the experience in Ottawa a little bit more stifling than I did. She decided that she wanted to go back to university to pursue a PhD. She applied to a variety of schools and she said, well, this is the last time I'm applying to anything, so maybe I'll apply to Harvard. And lo and behold, the Harvard Business School said, we'd love for you to do your PhD here. She moved down to do her PhD, and I agreed that I would move down with her. So six or eight months later, I sort of wrapped up my job, and I moved down to Boston. So this is around 2007, and you worked with Michael Porter at Harvard Business School. For those who are not familiar with Michael Porter, if you could tell us who he is and what that experience was like. Michael Porter is a professor at the Harvard Business School who's interest is around corporate strategy, national competitiveness. He is someone who had played a really important role in creating some foundational theories and approaches to business strategy and to national economic competitiveness back in the 80s and 90s. For anyone who's done a first-year business course, they might hear something called the Porter's Five Forces, and that is, in fact, the Porter that I worked for. I was his research associate for three years at his Institute for Strategy and Competitiveness. I was responsible for writing reports, preparing presentations, doing background analysis and research to prepare his interactions with both his class, but also, uh, more interesting for me at least, a whole spectrum of global leaders, kings and prime ministers and corporate titans, where he would share his insights and his reflections on the challenges and opportunities that they faced, whether it be a nation or a state or a multinational company. I would do the first draft of his report. And then he would, of course, modify it significantly and add a whole lot of extra value and insight. Working closely with him was the real eye-opener to the halls of power and a peek behind the curtains around how decisions are made at that level. You weren't only studying these people. You were meeting them, right? Like presidents and senior people. I would often be way in the back. I would say that I would see them rather than meet them. But I would certainly have the opportunity to meet with some of their teams. 
this was actually certainly a period in my life where I started to appreciate the dynamics around how decisions are made and around how leaders activate and engage their teams and empower their teams to come to decisions that are then ratified by an executive leader. For me, the interesting bit was seeing how those strategies, how the policies were developed and worked on. Then the actual event itself would sometimes only be an hour. That was a really interesting experience for me. And it also helped demystify the idea of the great man who holds all the knowledge but rather that great things are often done by teams and that it's okay to have a symbol of a leader, but that the leader's job is not in and of itself to be the smartest person in the room, but rather to be able to empower all those around them, to be able to seek and elicit input and to be able to then consolidate it into a narrative that inspires. So it's kind of leader as storyteller and enabler rather than leader as expert. That dynamic was really exposed to me and it's been really useful Great observation. What a wonderful experience. In 2010, you and Erin moved back to Toronto where she finished her PhD. And at that time, you got a job at Deloitte Consulting and you started a family and decided to move back to Boston. Why did you go back? Erin went on the job market and the best opportunity for us as a family was back in Boston. She got a job at Boston University. That was professionally a, a really neat opportunity for her. And the group I was in with Deloitte was one that had offices in every major metropolitan center in the world. I was able to smoothly transition from my role in, in Toronto down to Boston. When I joined Deloitte, a big part of that was because they were a platform from which I would have the flexibility to be able to transition a second child arrived around this time, and then you started working with the Massachusetts State Health Connector, which was one of your clients when you were at Deloitte. How did you end up there? I was working really hard, probably never worked harder in my life than when I was working at Deloitte in Boston. Child number two had arrived. Aaron was working extremely hard at Boston University, and they kept threatening to promote me <laughs> at Deloitte. And the challenge with that was that if I was to get promoted, I would have to travel. I was one of the only consultants on the Eastern Seaboard who had managed to get every single project for four years as a local deployment. Everyone else was traveling to work. I worked along a poor guy from Iowa. Well, I thought he was a poor guy from Iowa. He was a fantastic individual, but he was on a plane every week for 50 weeks traveling from Iowa to work on projects in Boston to the point where the IRS called him up one day and said, look, for tax purposes, we consider you a resident of Massachusetts. And uh, at the same time, there was this fantastic new operating officer who had been hired at the Massachusetts State Connector by the name of Vicky, who as a manager, I've never seen or experienced better. And I was working for her as a consultant. And I took her out one day and I said, look, this is what they're going to do to me. And she said, well, when you come and work for me, doing the same role will make you the director of reporting and start at this new function. And I said, I could come work for you. You would, And she said, absolutely. And so they promoted me on a Tuesday and by Friday I was an employee. We'd like to take a moment to remind our listeners this podcast is brought to you by LabOccupier.com and it's part of Next Great Big Ideas, Canada's Life Sciences Innovation Summit in support of McMaster Children's Hospital. 
This event is taking place in Hamilton the first Monday in October, and you can find details at nextgreatbigideas.com. What was so special about working with Vicky? What was she like? She was honest in her appraisal of people's abilities and expected them to meet them and then empowered and gave them the tools and the space to be able to deliver. She never created unreasonable expectations, but she held people and she was able to navigate being a friend who could put an arm around your shoulder and commiserate while also holding you to account for the professional output. That's a really delicate balance and doing that in a way that made everyone want to work harder for her. And she took the time to care about people as individuals. You'd show up after a hard month or the end of a bad quarter and there'd be a little handwritten note saying, look, I acknowledge and see the effort you put in. Also, within a framework of quantifiable assessments of performance, she, more than anyone else, demonstrated to me the importance of key performance indicators, KPIs, and holding people to account and not having a thousand of them, but just having three or four of them driving the whole operation to realize improvements along those metrics. She was a fantastic leader and manager. Aaron, shortly thereafter, got a job at uh, McMaster and you decided to come home. Was that a difficult decision for either of you? It was the end product of a long set of conversations. In the end, the decision was not difficult. Pulling the trigger was because the reason why we chose to move back was driven in no small part by a desire to reset our work-life balance. It was not conceivable for us to be able to do that in Boston. We saw an opportunity to move closer back to our families. We saw an opportunity to be able to continue to find rewarding interesting work while also creating space for us to raise family in the way we wanted to raise it. While the decision wasn't difficult in the end, at least not for me. What position did Erin accept at McMaster? She became an assistant professor in the School of Business with her specialties around organizational behavior and business sociology. She joined the McMaster School of Business, which was a really interesting job for her. There were a lot of changes going on in Hamilton at the time. There was also talk about creating this new thing called Synapse Consortium. And before we jump into Synapse, I'd appreciate you explaining to listeners what was going on in Hamilton at that time. You were offered a job to run this new organization, but you were really given an opportunity and the responsibility of creating the job. That's right. Three or four years before that, the community, uh, the Hamilton life science ecosystem or community as represented by some of the major anchor institutions, including McMaster University, Hamilton Health Sciences, St. Joseph's Healthcare, McMaster Innovation Park, Mohawk College, the city of Hamilton, Bay Area Health Trust, and a few others, were all increasingly conscious that there was a need for greater transformation of the intellectual property and the publicly funded infrastructure and expertise and assets that existed in Hamilton to be leveraged and transformed into commercially viable products and services. 
And this really stems from a global trend in turning healthcare as a cost center into something that produces exogenous benefits and externalities to the community in which these academic and clinical assets reside. That's a lot of buzzwords to say that what was happening is that there's a lot of money going into healthcare and people wanted to extract some of the value out of that and turn those innovations into commercially viable companies. There is a lot of that siloing and the mechanism that the community was exploring when I arrived was how do we start to collaborate and coordinate better? We were depending upon serendipity for uh, an opportunity that would come into the community to hit the right person in the right institution. They had to also care and that there wasn't any release valve so that if someone didn't know where to send someone or someone didn't have the time to engage and have the 30 minute conversation to find out what the organization or what the company really wanted, the community effectively came to Innovation Factory which is our regional innovation centers. For those who live in Ontario, they might have heard of Mars or Communitech or Venture Lab. This is Innovation Factories, the regional innovation center in Hamilton. They came to Innovation Factory and said, look, we need you to kind of bring us together and create a space for us to be able to facilitate collaboration, coordination across these institutions that collectively employ 34, 35,000 people spend half a billion dollars a year on research and have an economic impact at five and a half billion dollars a year. And Innovation Factory said, okay, we'll do this. And it was the first material delivery that Dave Carter, the CEO of, of Innovation Factory, spearheaded. What he built was a brochure using Synapse as the logo and the brand. And Synapse was a pitch competition that Innovation Factory had started a couple of years before. And that first brochure was something transformative because the community each put in what their marketing budget would have been for a single half page ad. And instead they ended up with a 16 page narrative about why Hamilton was great. And then we were able to use that to share with stakeholders, with the trade commissions, government, companies that were interested in FDI. It's only we had this thing. They scratched their head and they asked themselves, well, what if we wanted to make this a thing, what would it look like? And so they scratched their heads some more. They met, and this is where they ran into problems. They met as a committee every couple of months for a couple of years. And they kept saying, what are we going to do? What have you done? And they all looked at their shoes and said, oh, geez, well, maybe next time. And they kept reaffirming this commitment, but they didn't quite know what to do. And so finally someone put up their hands and they said, look, let's put a couple of dollars on the table and let's hire a consultant. And the consultant can come in and tell us how to build a thing that can be the engine, this concierge that we think we need. And they went to a consulting firm and the consulting firm said, for the amount of money that you've put in the pool, we can give you six weeks. And at the same time, I happened to be coming home <laughs> to Hamilton because Hamilton is a beautiful Goldilocks sized city. So we're big enough that we have one of everything and all sorts of assets, but we're small enough that you can go and you can meet leaders and find time and engage with them. So I met with Dave Carter and I met with Keenan Loomis at the Hamilton Chamber of yep. Commerce. They said, huh, you're a consultant. Oh, you're coming back and you don't have a job and your wife's a professor at the university. Why don't we hire you? And instead of six weeks, we'll get you for six months. And I said, sure. You're going to pay me to meet with everyone in Hamilton in this sector 
and give you some recommendations on how to work more collaboratively. Sounds lovely. It's a great way for me to transition back into Hamilton, a community that I certainly still loved, but hadn't had any professional associations with for 19 years. Very quickly, it became apparent to me what a synapse could do and to act as a concierge, to act as a facilitator. I came back and I said, what kind of budget do you want to deploy? And then based on that, as a community, here's how I would structure it. So I was able to build the job from the ground up. And after I built it, I presented it and they said, that's great. Do you want to run it? I said, sure. I mean, I basically just built my dream job. And this job really reflected the characteristics of some of my previous experiences, coordination and the integration of different agencies and points of view that I got from my time at Foreign Affairs, the strategy and business development that I'd gotten in my time at Deloitte, the work around healthcare and deploying some of those tools that I learned at the Massachusetts Health Connector, all under the rubric of full economic development and competitiveness, which I had learned through my time with Michael Porter. And that was inspired and kicked off by Mark Bush. And so I wove together effectively my dream job and have been doing that for the last couple of years. That is such a great story. For those who are not familiar with the Synapse Consortium and probably know Hamilton as a Rust Belt city and are not familiar with all of the cool stuff that's going on in the Hammer, what's your elevator pitch? The Synapse Consortium is a mechanism for both private and public organizations to access the infrastructure, the expertise, and the capabilities they need to be able to scale and grow a business. It is a window into the assets that exist in Hamilton. Hamilton sits at the fulcrum of one of the largest and most dynamic life science ecosystems in North America, stretching from Toronto to Hamilton to London. And it is a community that has world-class expertise and research and capabilities in a variety of sectors that are on the leading edge of the life science industry, whether that's genomics and personalized medicine, whether that's vaccines and pandemic response, whether that's remote care and digital tools that help enable individuals to manage their own care away from the hospital, or whether it's radiopharmaceuticals. In Hamilton, we have a collaborative spirit and the assets that can enable the testing and evaluation of your technology. We are the place in Canada that you should come to test and develop the next generation of cool ideas. It's got so many assets, and I have a personal affiliation. I'm on the board of directors to Hamilton Health Sciences Foundation. You are helping people make aware of all the cool stuff that's going on. It's extraordinary. You've been at this now for about six years. What's been your biggest challenge? Probably the biggest challenge is that I am an economist by training, and that the personality that would be best suited for this role is probably one who is a marketer or a storyteller. 
And unfortunately, my storytelling often involves making things more dense and less accessible as I try to dive into details. And I think that's been tough because my instinct is not to go towards the storytelling. It's really around collaboration and community building. As I reflect on the last six years, I think about that as a challenge for me. It's about capturing the story in a bottle and being able to share it as widely and with the verve and the vigor that Hamilton deserves. What has been your biggest loss in the six years you've been on the job, and what did you learn from that loss? The last six years have been a really fantastic run for me and for Synapse. It is easy to get down on myself for a lack of impact, but fundamentally, I'm a single individual trying to push a super freighter that is filled with 36,000 people. And I'm trying to nudge it a few inches to a different course. And the thing about that is that the changes are imperceptible because when you change the course of something the size of a community's ecosystem, of Hamilton's of life science ecosystem, you don't see the change in one year, two years. You see the change in five years, 10 years, 20 years. And so loss for me would not be measured today, but would be instead measured in 20 years. If I've not changed the course enough today, but I won't know that for 20 years. Someone went at, once asked me, he said, what's Synapse's purpose? What's success for you? I said, well, in the short term that I can connect you to the person you want to talk to today making that connection, that creating a relationship, a collision. But in the long term, Synapse's success will, if in 20 years, everyone in Hamilton is able to hold two thoughts in their head simultaneously. One, that they are part of the organization that pays their salary and they are vested in its success. And two, that they feel that they are part of a community and they are invested in the success of that community. Holding those two thoughts, that they are part of those two groups but again, I won't know that for another 15 years. All the losses that I've experienced are not material. They're not the metric by which I'm measuring success. What's been your biggest win? I would say the biggest win that I've ever had was that I was recently in a meeting, which I quarterback with a federal minister. And I set the meeting up so that I would pitch and try and weave all of the disparate elements together into a single narrative to sort of inspire this minister as she was in the midst of this site visit. The very fact that we had the minister coming was also a success. And for the first time in one of these settings, after everyone had spoken, I was struck. There was nothing that I could say that could add to the story that these stakeholders had woven together about how they were an interconnected collaborative community. And that is success when the community no longer needs me to tell the story because it's telling its own story. That is a very cool insight. Thank you for that. What is Sophie? Sophie is a program that owned and operated by Innovation Factory. I was part of the team that led the pursuit for the funding that secured and enabled Sophie to stand up. Sophie stands for Southern Ontario Pharmaceutical Health Innovation Ecosystem. It's a bit of a mouthful. And it is a federally funded program that provides non-repayable grants to companies to work with and leverage the assets 
the clinical infrastructure, the research expertise that exists in the four anchor institutions in Hamilton, Mohawk College, St. Joseph's Healthcare, Hamilton Health Sciences, and McMaster University. And it is designed to pay for more than 45 collaborative projects between life science companies developing really innovative technology to test, to develop, and to improve their their technology in collaboration with these world-class experts. What role do you think Hamilton's going to be playing in the Canadian life sciences community five, 10 years from now? I think it will continue to play an active and important role in the life science community. From a research and a clinical care perspective, McMaster and Hamilton Health Sciences are already nice across Canada as leaders and will continue to build on that expertise and continue to deploy their expertise in support of the national community. I think that from a commercialization perspective, I think we will see an increasing number of companies calling Hamilton home and emerging out of Hamilton's ecosystem. But I think that Hamilton will play its most important role, and and I think we're starting to see this, and I think that it will become more evident over the next five to 10 years as a testbed for product development, for product testing, for evaluations, and for trials. Not necessarily where you go to make your first sale, but where you go to make sure that your product truly is innovative and to put it through its paces so that you know that it will satisfy the demands, both clinically and commercially, in whatever market you want to take your product. You meet a lot of people from senior executives and of, of multinational organizations to newly minted CEOs of startups and, and scaling companies. And you spent time in Canada's Department of Foreign Affairs. You've been at Harvard. You've been at Deloitte. You have a unique perspective in the Canadian life sciences community, at least in my mind. What advice would you give to listeners who may be just starting out in their business careers? If you're starting out your career in life sciences and you're looking to take an idea, a piece of innovation, and transform that into something that you're going to be able to sell, you better love what you're working on. You better be inflamed with a passion and with a motivation that transcends financial reward. Because those that are able to make it through the slog of regulatory approvals, of the Byzantine procurement, through the attraction and retention of talent to enable that journey, which is a real journey, which will take years, I would encourage those who are starting down the path of creating and building a, a life science company to really look inward and make sure that you see that flame because that will sustain you. That will come through when you talk and those who you need to activate in the community to help you on that journey will see that flame and will respond to it. And that's not to say that it's a bad thing if you don't have that, but that would be my advice. Look inwards for that flame. Do you have that passion? And if you do, then go for it. For those who are just starting out in business in the first place, more generally, I would say be prepared for adversity and recognize that it makes you stronger. That testing yourself in the market, testing yourself against competitors, testing yourself against the demands of customers, testing yourself against the expectations of investors is the crucible in which great firms are made and that you should not avoid 
disappointment and rejection and constructive conflict, but rather welcome it and embrace it because it will make you, it will make your company, it will make your product better and therefore more successful. Good advice. What is it you're most proud of? Personally, without a doubt, my children, my family, the space that I've been able to create for them and the joy in seeing them discover the world anew, without a doubt. Professionally, I would say probably Synapse. Never before had I asked myself to create something from scratch. And the ability to blend together a lifetime of experience into a position and into a organization and to see it have real impact on the ground brings me great joy professionally. I mentioned a few moments ago that you meet a lot of people, you know, startups to CEOs of multinational companies. You are in one of those enviable positions in my mind where you see innovation before the rest of us. What's the next great big idea on your horizon, Mr. Munga? I would have to say that the next great big idea that I see on the horizon is a world in which we have hospitals with as few patients walking through the doors as possible, that we're really moving toward a space where we are enabling care outside of an acute setting and taking advantage of new technology and data analytics and the capabilities of sifting through and analyzing mountains of data to be able to nip problems before they become acute complications. And so while this is certainly not an idea that originates from me, when I look about and I think about a great big idea that will transform the economics of healthcare will transform the downstream implications on a healthier society for the availability of talent, the redistribution of resources towards social services and preventative services and preventative care. This is an idea, the idea that, that a hospital is a place that you use in a last resort, a place that where patients go only after they've exhausted all other avenues. That, for me, is a great big idea that I think we should aspire to. Now, enabling it in that reality is accompanied by a level of complexity and cultural change and innovation that is commensurate with the title of a great big idea. To realize this would be complicated, but it is one that would make us healthier, more prosperous, more productive, and would make us the envy of the world. That's a great vision. And thank you for your time. This has been really enjoyable. It's been a pleasure getting to know you. And I've, I've known you for a few years now, but having this perspective behind the scenes, I really enjoyed this. I really appreciate it. Well, Jim, it was a real pleasure. Thanks again. That was Alex Mugga, Executive Director of the Synapse Life Science Consortium in Hamilton, Ontario. You can find details about the organization online at synapseconsortium.com. This week's episode was researched and edited by Tisha Prasad. If you'd like to learn more about our team, you can find us at laboccupier.com, and you can follow me on social at laboccupier. If you'd like to contact me, I can be reached via email at jwilson@leonard. that's L-E-N-N-A-R-D, dot com. We hope you enjoy our podcast, and thank you so much for listening. <laughs>